Please turn your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy chapter 21. Deuteronomy chapter 1, we're continuing to make our way through the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, and we're in the last of those five books, the book of Deuteronomy, and we're talking about how to live as God's treasured possession. So just like the people of Israel were called by God to live as His treasured possession in the land that God was taking them, uh, so you and I, by God, are called to live as His treasured possession in the place that He's called you and I as well. And so we're going to be looking through what that looks like in the area of justice this morning as we look at Deuteronomy chapters 19 through 23. Now, as you turn there in your Bibles, just kind of a little bit of a, a couple things here. One, just maybe a little bit of a, a warning, a caution. Uh, we, as we talk about justice this morning, we're also going to be talking about injustice and some of the examples of injustice that are given in these chapters are uh, very difficult. Some of them deal with abuse and assault, and so if that's something that you need to be prepared for, I, I want to make you prepared for that. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about that, but uh, just in case. Well, if you're able to now, if you would stand with me in honor of God's Word as we read together, I'm just going to read a portion from uh, Deuteronomy, this, this section of Deuteronomy. I'm going to begin in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Verse 15, beginning there. If a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn. And rebellious, he will not obey our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to, deal, to death with stones, and so you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. And going to chapter 22, you shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's which he loses, and you find you may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. You may be seated. May, God encourage, may we be encouraged through the reading of God's word this morning. Let's pray. Father, again, we ask your special grace upon us. We pray that you would help us to think rightly in the area of, of justice, of treating one another rightly, and help us to be changed as a result of our encounter with your word through the work of your spirit, we pray 
In your son Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've been going through the book of Deuteronomy, we've seen that God is concerned about justice. In Deuteronomy 16, we read, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall, know, show, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So we're here in Moses' second speech, his second sermon in the book of Deuteronomy, and the people are being called to live as God's treasured possession. They're to, to live rightly before him. And what we're seeing this morning is that they're to live justly. Justice is important to God. God's people are to love him. They're to love each other. And if they love each other, they're going to act with, with justice. And you would think, as we're trying to apply some of these things for the church today, we are also God's treasured possession. You would think that this could be somewhat easy. God wants his people to be just. He wanted them to be just here in the book of Deuteronomy. He wants us to be just as well and problem solved, right? Unfortunately, it's, it's a lot more difficult. In fact, we, the, the pastoral staff and some other staff and some other people in the church went to a conference a few weeks ago, the Together for the Gospel conference, and one of the speakers was David Platt, who is the president of the International Mission Board, and, and uh, Platt gave by far what, is, what was the most controversial message of the entire conference. It was on racism, injustice, and repentance. So how could that go wrong, right? Um, in fact, I was listening to him, and I was thinking, oh, that, that poor guy, uh, you know, these, watching the social media thing erupt and thinking, man, I'm Glad I am not that guy. And then I remembered, oh, wait, we're in Deuteronomy. We're talking about justice in a few weeks. Uh, I might be that guy. And, uh, you know, first service, I was like, man, I'm, I'm glad I get another shot at this. Um, I'm glad this isn't the, the message that we're recording. Uh, you know, there's, I, I learn, you know, hopefully. And so hopefully there will be some encouraging things here. But uh, Platt, as he's talking about racism and injustice and uh, repentance, he was essentially saying that, that uh, and he was speaking to a predominantly group of uh, white pastors, and he said, look, um, we are guilty of, of turning a blind eye to, to racism, okay? And in fact, he said, not only do we turn a blind eye to racism, but instead of, instead of bridging the divide between ethnic groups, oftentimes, as a church, as pastors, we're, we're widening the, that gap. Now, some people lost their minds. I mean, they just, they, they said, look, uh, you, you can't accuse just white people in general of being racist. That's, that's totally inappropriate. And, um, you know, we're not guilty. Just, you can't assign like broad guilt to, to a large group of people. And then other people are saying, man, this is exactly what the church needed to hear. We are guilty of, of turning a blind eye to injustice. And we need to acknowledge that. And we need to, to deal with that. We need to have dialogues with our black and uh, other, he mentioned specifically black, but, but other minority groups in our, our country, we need to talk to them and hear from them. Some people were kind of in the middle. Some say, I really agree with this part. I really disagree with that. Other people say, no, no, I really agree with that. I really disagree with this. I mean, 
the reactions were all over the place. In other words, implementing justice in our North American cultural context and talking about what that means and all sorts, it's, it's, it's difficult. In fact, as we think about applying this passage and really what's happening in all of the book of Deuteronomy, and all the Pentateuch, as we think about applying that to the church, there's, there's kind of three questions that I, before we, there's three more questions later, but before we get to those three questions, there's just kind of three questions I want us to, to think about as we begin to get to those questions later. And why it's so hard. One reason it's so hard is the question of just even what is justice? What, what, is, what does justice even mean? You say, well, am I for justice? Absolutely. But what a person means by justice can, can be very different. Some people say, well, well, justice is about equality. And so uh, whenever there's some people who have a lot of something and some people who have a little of something, that in and of itself is unjust. And we need to, to remedy that. And whenever there's equality, then there's justice. Talking to a, or I think I've mentioned this story before, but usually whenever we're talking about things being unjust because of inequality, what we're saying is, I don't have as much as someone else, right? And I mentioned several years ago, I was, I was at a political rally and I'd taken my kids there to kind of see what it, what, uh, it was like for to hear a presidential candidate give a speech and stuff. And the, there was a person walking around who had made a sign attacking the 1%, but they had made the sign on an iPad, and so they're walking around with an iPad attacking the 1%, and, and I'm like, oh, you, you poor college kid, don't you understand, you are the global 1%, right? Some people, that, that's what justice, justice means equality, things have to be the same. Other people say, no, justice is about the process, and so uh, whenever you have laws, are those laws administered in a, in a fair way? And I think that's, that, that's part of it for sure, but, but there's something even deeper biblically that we see happening. Not only are, are laws applied through a process that's fair, that, that bribery doesn't enter into, that power doesn't enter that all that's unjust, but it's, it's not just laws being administered fairly, but, but good laws just laws, righteous laws, righteousness and justice often are accompanied with one another in the biblical text. So one question is, what, what does justice even mean when we say we're for justice? Another question that we ask ourselves is, is justice even the mission of the church? Is justice even something that the church should be concerned with, pursuing justice? In other words, some people say, look, you know, justice is good, but it's not the job of the church to be involved in, in uh Social action is not the job of the church to be involved in the pro-life movement. It's not the job of the church to be involved in social equality. It's not, that's, that's a distraction from the church. And other people would say, no, 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 not, a, not only is that, that not a, dis- a distraction, but that's an essential thing of, of what the church is supposed to be about. We're, we're supposed to be seeking justice in our society and, and pursuing those things. And then you have people in the middle all, all over the place. And we'll be talking about some of that this morning as well. And then a third question that people would ask as we think about how difficult it is to talk about justice in our North American 21st century context, another question is, is justice even possible? Is justice even, even remotely possible? heard an interview this, this past week with a woman, and this is not a woman from some far-off country or a different continent. It's a woman from America, from the United States of America. She had a daughter who ran away from home and she couldn't find her daughter. And then finally, the, the police, after 100 days or so, contacted her and said, we, we found your daughter. She, we found her on this, this website. She's been 
abducted and she's being sold as a, as a, as a sex slave on this website. You can imagine the, the terror that the mother experienced, how she, she and uh, law enforcement worked some things to, to rescue her daughter, and then they went after the website. They said this website exists, and it, it sells young girls on it, and, and of course this thing needs to be shut down, and they, they shut it down, and then people begin to kind of criticize them for shutting this website down because it pushed some of the other activities that were on that website into, into the, the darker recesses of the internet, and there were some unintended consequences there. And, and so here's a person trying to pursue justice, and they, they accomplish one thing, but, but because we live in such a wicked society that pursuing that one thing causes five other bad things to happen, and, and then the, the, the person who's just sitting on the sidelines can say, well, look, you, you messed up here and you messed up here. It's far easier to not get involved in trying to pursue justice from the very beginning than, than to try to pursue justice and be criticized. And so some people have said, look, is, is justice even possible? And many Christians say that, look, wait, wait until Jesus comes back because justice isn't possible now. How should we think about this? How should we think about these chapters in, in, in the book of Deuteronomy? Here's, here's the main thing I want us to think about as we look at these passages. Justice, the, the presence of justice, that the pursuit of justice, is an inevitable fruit of the heart that's been transformed by the gospel of faith in Jesus Christ that the church proclaims. Justice, that the presence of justice, the pursuit of justice, is an inevitable fruit of the heart that has been transformed by the gospel of faith in Jesus Christ that the church proclaims. Now, it's kind of a long sentence, and some of you are writing it down, like, why does he write such long sentences? Um, here, I'll, I'll just talk a little bit more as you keep writing if, if you want to, but here's, here's what we're saying. The church is proclaiming a message. It's what the church does. The church is proclaiming a message that you need to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to place your faith in him for eternal life. And as a person hears that message and says, okay, I, I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe that I need to place my faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that, that Jesus Christ took the, the just punishment that I deserve. As a person hears that message and responds in faith to that message, a person's heart is changed. They become a, a new creature. And now the, the fruit of the Spirit results from that heart that's been transformed. And one of the inevitable fruits of the heart that's truly been transformed by the gospel is justice a desire to see things that, that, are, that are right take place, a desire to see righteousness and, and goodness in people treated fairly, that's an inevitable fruit of the heart that's been transformed by the gospel of faith in Jesus Christ that the church proclaims, that gospel that the church proclaims. All right, now let's get into three more questions. And here are the big three questions. Here's, here's the first big question. What are some justice principles then from Deuteronomy chapters 19 through 23 and really all of the Pentateuch. What are some just, as we look at these chapters, why do these chapters exist? These chapters exist because God desires his treasured possession to live in such a way that people are treated rightly, that they're treated justly, that, that justice is, is given to all people through good laws, righteous laws. Now, what are, as we think about the principles that, that inform this, what are some of the justice principles that were for, true for them and are true for us today? One is this. We need to realize that the weak are especially vulnerable to injustice. Those who are weak have a, a special danger that faces them that, that allows them to be the victims of things that are unjust. And so you say, well, what, what are some examples of that? Well, 
And I'm just going to kind of skipping around in these, these chapters a little bit to, to help us think through these things. And incur- I'm, I'm kind of giving you some tracks to run on, encourage you to read these chapters on your own throughout the week. But we see, for example, in chapter 20, we see the, the one example of the week are those who have been defeated in war. So they're, they come, you conquer, and you recognize that these people are your mercy, you, you treat them rightly. See that in chapter 21 as well. We see that at times in these chapters, we see, we see that there are people who are like temporarily vulnerable. You come to chapter 22, and those first few verses talk about your neighbor, and so your, your neighbor loses something, and, and he's, he's vulnerable for a moment. He's lost his, his ox, he's lost his donkey, he's lost some sort of property, his garment, and, and he's vulnerable without it, and, and you have it, and you don't take advantage of that, but you realize the, the weak, those who are momentarily weak or weak through result of poverty, whatever, they're, they're vulnerable. And he talks about the poor. In fact, there are four groups that appear frequently throughout the Old Testament, the, the groups that are the disenfranchised, those who are removed from, from power, the poor, the foreigner, the widow, and the orphan. These are, these are groups that are often mentioned in Scripture who are vulnerable to people taking advantage of them. We also see when we've looked at some of these passages before, that, that, that uh, God is concerned with, with women. He talks about women who've been conquered in chapter 21. He talks about, you know, you go to war against your enemies in verse 10, the Lord gives them in your hand, you take them captive, and unlike the cultures that are around them that could treat women very brutally, uh, the people of Israel can't do that. They're to, they're to, there's a process by which a person who's been captured can become a part of the covenant community, and you can't... Uh, you can't marry a woman like that and then, and then uh, send her away and say, I'm no longer responsible for you. He says, if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. You'll, you won't sell her for money. Don't treat her like a slave. You've humiliated her. Chapter 22, we've talk, talked about chapter 22 before as well. And in chapter 22, we see this, this, uh, some laws governing sexual immorality. And he talks about adultery. He talks about a, a, a man trying to get out of his marriage and says, look, you, you, can't, uh, you can't just uh, say, I'm not happy with this woman anymore. You have a responsibility to care for her. And you, st- actually, in fact, he says, you have to, if you've uh, accused her of immorality, you have to stay married to her. And you say, well, that sounds like a bad deal for her. But what Moses is saying is you have a, a ongoing permanent legal obligation to care for her. And why would he say that? Well, because women are vulnerable in this culture care for her. He talks about uh, adultery in that passage of Deuteronomy 22, and then he talks about a woman who has been assaulted, who's, who's engaged. In verse 25, it says, if in the open country a man meets a young woman who's betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. In other words, uh, he dies, and she has a person who can continue to provide for her. A woman who's assaulted and is not engaged, the, the man has an ongoing legal obligation to, to provide for her. And again, some of these things seem strange, but what, what Moses is saying, what God is saying through Moses is, I, I care for the weak. There are weak people who are vulnerable to injustice, and God is concerned with them. Second principle is this. We need to realize that the powerful are especially vulnerable to, to practicing injustice. So the, the powerful are especially vulnerable to being the people who abuse those who are weak. What are some examples of that? Well, there's 
all sorts of, of power dynamics. There's the wealthy person, and the wealthy person we've seen can, can use their financial resources to, uh, as they can use their financial resources to bribe officials. They can use it to pervert justice. The physically strong are, are powerful. They can, they can use their power as, in, as victors in war and abuse people. There's emotional power. We see in Deuteronomy 19, verses 15 through 17, the, the strength of the, the loved woman, and he can't, treat the un, he can't treat the son of the unloved woman differently. We also see that there's power sometimes in the poor. Leviticus, and this is outside of Deuteronomy, but Leviticus talks about not showing partiality to the poor or deferring to the great. And so it's possible for people to feel sympathetic for the poor, for the poor to, uh, to gang up against the wealthy, and both of those uh, actions are contrary to what God would desire His people to do. We see in these, these chapters that a, a mob has strength. A large group of people who are, who are excited and, and, and uh, incited to do something can act in an unjust way. Remember that there's that scene in the novel To Kill a Mockingbird. And in that, in that novel, there's a, a man who has been Atticus Finch, and his job is to, to defend a black man who has been accused of assaulting a white woman. It's the 1930s in, in the south in Alabama, the small town in Alabama. And uh, the lawyer, Atticus Finch, as he defends this black man, Tom Robinson, one night he goes to the city jail, and he's sitting outside the city jail because he's heard that there's going to be trouble. And there's that, that powerful scene where the, the mob shows up late at night in order to, to lynch Tom Robinson, this black man who's been accused of this crime. It's this powerful scene where Atticus, this one man, stands against this mob, and it, it looks like things are going to go very, very badly because what? A mob has power. And then there's that, that beautiful moment where his, his little innocent daughter walks into the midst of this group. She snuck out and wanted to see what her dad was up to. And this little innocent girl walks into the middle of this mob. And, and what does she do? Just in her innocence, she recognizes people that she knows and she begins talking to them, right? She sees her friend's father and begins talking to him. And, and what happens, the mob dissipates as the mob changes from a mob to, to a group of individuals. And Atticus later says to his kids, he says, a mob's always made up of people no matter what. Your friend was part of a mob last night, but he was still a man. Every mob in every little southern town is always made up of people, you know. doesn't say much for them, does it? The, the point is this. The point is this. We need to realize that the powerful are especially vulnerable to practicing injustice, and we need to realize that, that many of us are powerful in ways that we don't even realize. There's emotional power. There is uh, power of wealth, there is power of resources, there is power of, of group mentality, there is power in a group of bullies, there is power in all sorts of different relationships and dynamics. There's ethnic power as well in some cultures. And here's the third, third thing to think about. We need to realize that there are a variety of factors that blind us to injustice, Okay? There are a variety of factors that can blind us to injustice and our participation in it. So look at what happens here in some of these, these texts. Uh, greed can blind people to injustice. So you come to, to chapter 19, verse 14, it talks about moving property boundaries. And a person can I be thinking about them being unjust, they can think, oh, I, I deserve more, this isn't right, my neighbor's kind of ticked me off in some sort of way, and so I'm going to 
do this. He says, no, no, you, you can't do that. That's unjust. That love of power causes people to be unjust. Uh, uh, prejudice can cause people to be unjust or turn a blind eye to injustice. That's how that group of people are. That's how that ethnicity thinks. It's that ethnicity's own fault that they are the way they are or they have the disadvantages that they have. They don't deserve what I have. There could be prejudice and racism, ethnic, ethnocentrism that causes us to be unjust. There can be emotion that causes us to, unjust, to be unjust. As you begin this section in chapter 19, it talks about what? It talks about these cities of refuge. Now, why did they need these cities of refuge? It says these were cities of refuge that a person who had been uh, accused of murder could flee to. It says in verse 4, this is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there may save his life if anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past. And he kind of gives some examples here. It says uh, these cities exist for people to flee to, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. Moses recognizes, God through Moses recognizes that there are going to be people who in the heat of an emotional moment, they hear that someone has died at the hands of another person, and before getting all the facts and figuring out what happens, they take vengeance. What we need to understand, there are a variety of factors that blind us to injustice. Emotions, prejudices, our love for ourselves, our pride, our arrogance. And what you need to understand, brothers and sisters, your natural inclination is going to be to blind yourself to the sin of injustice. And if you're in a position of power and and I'm spe- I, would, I would say different things if I was in a different audience, but I'm talking to a group of predominantly white people who are living in Midwest and are mostly middle class or something like that. And so, yes, we are sometimes victims, all, as individuals are victims of, of unjust things as well, but what we need to understand, we are people in positions of power, globally speaking. And our natural inclination is going to be for us to turn our eyes away from the existence of things that are unjust and create a world for ourselves in which we neither need to be aware of nor deal with injustice. That's going to be our natural inclination, to create a world for ourselves in which we're neither aware of nor need to deal with injustice. Ligon Duncan spoke at the conference as well, the pre-conference, and he said, he gave an amazing talk. He talked about how 19th century conservative Christianity uh, did two things. He said, talking about Presbyterians in particular, conservative Presbyterians, he says they defended Christianity. They defended Christianity against liberalism. And at the same time, they provided theological cover for America's greatest sin of slavery. Isn't that astonishing to think about? Our theological forebears did two things, one of them tremendously good, one of them tremendously evil. And his argument is it's, it's a thing that's still affecting the church today. Most conservative Christians at the time knew that slavery was wrong, they were against it theologically, and yet they were afraid to speak out against it because uh, they, didn't la- they lacked the courage simply to, to take a stand and to do something. Now this is, uh, this is hard, Right? But a person who's going to rightly practice justice needs to say, okay, what, 
what areas of injustice exist in my culture that I'm, I'm not willing to think deeply about or willing to, to do something about? And again, I, I would say something different in a different group, but this is the group that we're in here today. So how does that exist in our culture? I think we can think of several examples, right? We think about the unborn. We have unborn members of our, our society who are not protected by our laws. That's, that's not just. It's not good laws being practiced fairly. We also live in a, a, a country in, in which different ethnic groups experience different, different realities. Different socioeconomic groups experience different realities. The poor among us don't have access to the same legal representation that the wealthy do, right? And it manifests itself in some strange ways. Now, you can argue, we can argue, and I'm sure we will, we can disagree about, okay, why are there disparities among ethnic groups? Is it social structure? Is it individual choice? Is it a combination? But, but here's the reality, and this, this came up at the, the conference. This is, I looked at some stats. I could give you lots of stats, but at the conference, they were specifically focused on the white-black dynamic in our, our country. That seems to be the, the, the prominent racial tension area. One in ten black men in their 30s will spend at any given moment is in prison or jail, and the current trends continue. One in three black men can expect to go to prison at some point in their lives. Now, my guess is that there are a lot of factors related to that, right? And if our first response was to say, well, the cause is this, and this is why, and they should, and this group should do that, look, I, I think you missed the point, right? I think if our first response is to, to talk about, well, how this is not my fault, misses the response of compassion that a person who's excited about justice should be thinking about. To hear about a plight and, and to revert to say, well, this isn't my fault, that's not the right response. Look, do I, do I love my African-American brothers? Do I love my uh, Hispanic brothers, my Asian brothers, my poor brothers, my wealthy brothers enough to, to listen and to care and say, okay, why does this exist and, and am, I, am I concerned and does it break my heart to think about the reality that other people are going through and certainly in a culture that for whatever reason is not, is not just and righteous? We need to realize there are a variety of factors that are going to, to blind us to injustice. Emotion, love of power, love of wealth, all sorts of things are going to blind us to injustice. And, and all I'm asking this morning, maybe I'll ask more next week or some other time in the future, all I'm asking this morning is, look, do I, do I love people who are in, in a situation in the culture in which I live that's, that's, that's bad? Am I, am I willing to think deeply about why that exists? as opposed to just sit on the surface level answer and say, well, I didn't directly cause that. Here's a fourth principle. We need to realize that injustice must be dealt with and not excused, condoned, or celebrated. Why do these passages exist? Because God wants his people to, to deal with injustice. God's people can't be content with injustice. God's people can't rely on other people to deal with it, they say, look, I, 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 can't, I can't abide with this. God doesn't desire this. These passages, these first five books of the Bible, would, would as 
as Israel went through their history, these, these passages would be used to call kings and, and the people to account. They'd say, hey, look, king, remember what God's law says. And so, for example, in Jeremiah, the king was, God through Jeremiah would say this, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who's been robbed and, and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Jeremiah 22, verse 13, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. And so in other words, people who are in a position of power, he says, look, um, you are using your position of power to, to, to give low wages to these people and to, to keep them in this, in this economic state, and it's, it's completely contrary to what a king is supposed to be doing. Now, what's the point? God tells his people Injustice has to be dealt with in, in the hearts of the people who are going to walk rightly with me. It can't be excused. It can't be celebrated. It can't be condoned. Okay. Are we still friends? Is it still going well? Is it hot in here and anyone else? Okay. Someone's like, no, it's always cold in here. Um, now, here's, here's where some people go with this. Here's where some people go with this. Okay, um, injustice has to be dealt with, and so, so this has to be a mission of the church. Now, an important thing to realize is this. There's, there's one other passage in this section that I think is important to, to remember. Many other passages, but here's a, here's a passage we see in the New Testament, is quoted in the New Testament. At the end of Deuteronomy 21, we read this earlier, it talks about a, a person who's, been, who's guilty of a crime that deserves death. And what, what does it say? It says the person who's, who's hanged on a tree is, is cursed. Now, how does Paul use this in Galatians? In Galatians, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by what? Becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In other words, Jesus Christ takes the place that you and I deserve. In other words, every person in this room is guilty of injustice at some level. So, yes, our, our society is unjust in some ways. It's just in other ways. It's guilty of injustice in other ways. But each of us is guilty of, of injustice, of being unjust. We, we, we are, we're prejudiced. We love our wealth. We love whatever we can get. We don't want to treat people fairly. We're, we're guilty of all those things. And not only are we guilty of injustice, we're guilty of, of immorality. We're guilty of, of greed. We're guilty of all sorts of sin. And what do we see? We see that Jesus Christ comes, takes the penalty that each of us deserves, and, and dies on the cross in our place. He takes the curse that we deserve. God stays perfectly just, and he justifies. He stays just by dealing with sin, by punishing his son in our place, and he provides us the ability to be justified, to be declared righteous as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. That's justice for the Christian. So here's what some people say. Here's what some Christians say. Okay, if, if justice is a good thing, then, then why, why aren't we more involved in it as a church? I mean, our, our purpose statement is to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and to prepare his people to worship him forever. Shouldn't we say we exist to glorify God as we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, prepare his people to worship him forever, and pursue justice in our society? Why isn't that part of our purpose statement? Well, that brings us to the second question I want us to think about. It's related to all this. What is the church's mission? Okay, what is the church's mission? What are we all about? Because this relates to this area of justice for many, for many of us. 
Here's, here's a primary thing for us to, to know. The mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's, that's why we exist. We exist to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, to prepare people to worship him forever. Colossians 1 tells us, him we proclaim, warning everyone and, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so what is Paul's ultimate aim? He wants to present people mature in Christ. And so he, he proclaims the gospel, and he proclaims the gospel to, to Jews and, and to the uncircumcised and to, to people throughout all walks of life. And he desires them to place their faith in Jesus Christ. And then his desires to present them complete, to, to mature in Christ. And so he's working toward their sanctification. And brothers and sisters, that's what everyone in this room is to be about as well. And collectively, as as the collective church, that's our primary mission. So big picture, big church, all of us in this room who are committed to, to Bethany Community Church as our local church or whatever local church you're a part of, that's our task. Make disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus is great commission. What is it? Make disciples. Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert wrote a book called The Mission of the Church, and they say the mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit and gathering these disciples into churches that they might worship the Lord and obey his commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. And that's, that's right, okay? Now here's, here's the second thing to think about, though, as we think about this related to justice. The mission of the church is a, is a distinctly, distinctively Christian mission. In other words, the secular food bank or the, the, uh, the orphanage, there's a secular orphanage, it, it, those are great things, but they're not the Christian mission. There are a lot of people who are striving to pursue social justice, and, and, and of course we're in favor of those things, but that's not the church. It's distinct from the church. If they do them apart from the, that primary foundational mission, to make disciples. In fact, think about Jesus. Jesus, as he talks about his mission and his ministry, it's, it's all about proclaiming the kingdom. Mark 1.17, he says to his disciples, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, d disciplers. Mark 1.38, he said to them, let's go into the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. And over and over again, as you see Jesus entering into places, of, of course, he'll do good things. He'll, he'll help the poor. He'll heal the sick. And, and yet, we never see in Scripture that being his, his primary focus. He never says, I'm going here to, to do this, this social good. Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, here's, here's the third thing. The mission of the church... The mission of the church brings blessings to those who receive the gospel, including an unwavering commitment to the pursuit of justice. The mission of the church, that, that church that's pursuing, making disciples of Jesus Christ, it, it brings blessings to those who receive the gospel, including a, a commitment to the pursuit of justice. So in other words, the, the church comes and you know, we're involved, we're, we're, here's, here's the good news of Jesus Christ, and as a, as a church proclaims that, a person says, okay, I, I believe that message of Jesus Christ, I want to place my faith in Jesus Christ as well. And what happens? That heart's transformed. 
And, and blessing comes with that, blessing of, of how, they, how a husband and wife treat each other, the blessing of how a, a mom treats her children, how a, a, a child reacts to their, their father. All those things take place. But justice isn't the ultimate aim of the church. It's, it's an inevitable fruit. In other words, social justice isn't the primary thing that the church is thinking about and involved in, but as people respond to the gospel, it's an inevitable fruit. And then fourthly, the mission of the church is inevitably accompanied by good works. The mission of the church is inevitably accompanied by good works. In other words, as a church comes as a group into a community and proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ in that community, it is inevitable it cannot be helped, but that church, if it's a true church, is going to be doing good things. A church gets placed in, in Washington and a, and a tornado hits, right? In our community, that, that church doesn't say, hey, you know what, sorry, uh, we're all about Jesus and not about anything else. No, as, as a church has that primary mission of we want to make disciples, what does the church do? Hey, we care for those. And we care for those first to our immediate context, and, and, then, and then beyond, 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 beyond. The mission of the church, as a church says, I, I'm excited about the gospel. And as a church proclaims the good news of the, of, of the gospel to a world that's lost, good works inevitably accompany it. It's what happens in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul comes into a community and, and he begins to proclaim the gospel. and says, you, you became dear to us and we, we gave you not only of, our, of ourselves, but uh, not only proclaimed the gospel, gave, gave our very lives to you because you become so dear to us. The mission of the church is inevitably accompanied by good works. So here's, here's the question then. Next, final question. What does pursuing justice mean practically for the church? So, so I'm, I'm a church. I know that I'm supposed to be proclaiming the gospel. Every single person in here should be using the resources that God has given them to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. I know at the same time, I'm, I'm a person whose heart has been transformed by the gospel, so injustice bothers me deeply. What, what do I do? What does this look like? A couple encouragements. Uh, one, I need, I need to be gospel-focused, right? In my relationships with the people that God has placed in my I need to be gospel-focused, holding out the hope of faith in Jesus Christ. I also need to be passionate about caring for the vulnerable. So there's a, there's a broad sense in which we are the church, and yet we are also made up of, of individuals, okay? And so, so what's, the, what's the task of the broad church? Well, the, the, the big task of the church is to proclaim the gospel, to, to make disciples, and then what happens as people are made disciples, as people are, become disciples, they act like Jesus Christ would act. And so, as people act like Jesus Christ would act, they go into the places that God has called them to go outside the walls of this church, and 
and they are concerned with the vulnerable. They're concerned with those who are in need. They echo the heart of their heavenly Father who also cares for the widow, for the orphan, for the poor, for the foreigner, for those who are disenfranchised. And they, they go out as, as individuals who are part of Christ's church and they do good works as they proclaim the gospel. And so we have people who are in our church who are, who are discipled as we fulfill that primary mission and then they, they go and they do what? They, they serve at the Women's Pregnancy Center. They get involved in orphan care ministry. They go to the, the public school and their, their teachers or their principals or their superintendents, their counselors, and they're serving there. They go to the, the, the private school and they're, they're, at, they're at PCS, they're at uh, Lutheran, uh, that's where they are, and they're, they're serving there. You know, I'm not giving free plugs for the Lutherans. No, I'm just kidding. I, I just can't remember it. They, they go to different places that, that God has, has, has called them, and, and they serve as God's ambassadors in, in these places, right? As the church, as, as individual members of the church. Concerned about the vulnerable. This, this last week, I had someone come into my office and say, hey, the, the walk for the Women's Pregnancy Center, June 23rd, be a part of it. And I, I know that our, our church is going to be heavily involved in that, and that is a good thing. It's where God is places. God's people care about justice. Pursuing justice for the church is we're gospel-focused, we're passionate about caring for the vulnerable, we're, we're troubled by injustice, we're not apathetic. We act where we can, and we do good for, for good reasons. We, we listen and we're gracious to those with whom we disagree. You know, I, I, I think one of the most troubling things to me, and I think this, be careful here, Very oftentimes, the, the, the temptation, and again, we talked about how our tendency is to, to blind ourselves to injustice, right? Very often, we have people from, from different ethnic groups, from different socioeconomic groups, and they, they think very differently than we do with whatever group we're a part of. And our temptation can be to say, I don't need to listen to that because, because that's wrong. You're You're incorrect. And, and my caution would be, look, just, just understand that our natural inclination is, is to blind ourselves to injustice. It's, it's the human heart. And so at the very least, what do I want to do? When a person who's a brother or sister in Christ, especially, makes me aware of, of what they perceive as injustice, you, you know what I want to do with that person? I want to listen <laughs> I don't want to potentially change as God gives me the grace and need to change. Now, sometimes we may still disagree at the end of the day, but I need to listen. Why? Because I want to be one of the loudest voices crying out for justice for the weak. A few years ago, uh, I wrote a, a book on orphan care ministry, and um, if you've never read it, it was phenomenal. Uh, <laughs> If you read it, eh, right. But then a, a year or so after I wrote it, there was an article that came out that was just incredibly critical of the orphan care movement. It said, boy, this, this, this movement has, has it's tried to care, this evangelical Christians have tried to care for, for uh, orphans in other countries. They brought them their money and their missions in there, and they've caused corruption and children to be taken from mothers and just, just terrible things. And this article just kind of lambasted the evangelical Christian movement, orphan care movement, and mentioned several books by name, 
and, and mention my name too, or my, my, my book, the, the resource, right? Now, what's, what's the temptation? The temptation is to say, you know, how dare you? I was trying to do something good, and, and yes, there's evil in the world, and there's been some unintended consequences, but, you know, what have you done lately? But, but here's, here's how the Christian should respond. When, when confronted with injustice, that, that they even, even unintentionally have been a part of. We, we don't turn our eye to that. We don't make excuses. We say, that grieves my heart. It grieves my heart because it grieves my Heavenly Father's heart. And if there's, if there's any part of me that is participating in injustice, I, I repent of it. And even if I haven't directly participated in it, even if I haven't indirectly participated in it, it troubles my heart, it grieves me, and I pray to the God of justice to alleviate that situation. That's how God's people think. Justice, the, the fruit of justice, the presence of justice, is, is something that exists within the heart of those who have been transformed by the gospel of faith in Jesus Christ that message that the church joyfully and faithfully proclaims. My encouragement to you this morning, if you've not received the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, you would trust in Christ alone for eternal life. Your heart would be transformed, and by God's grace, you would pursue the heart of God in caring for others as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of your son Jesus. We thank you for the life that we can have through faith in his name. And I pray that by your grace, you'd cause we, your people, to walk in joy and love and obedience to you. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.